Welcome to the podcast version of These Vibes Are Too Cosmic. I'm Stevie Bergman, and my co-host is Brian Krauss. What you're about to listen to is a recording of our live radio show, edited for podcasting by our chief podcaster, David Exman. For copyright reasons, this recording is missing the eclectic and wonderful music we played during the original show, but you can hear it all by streaming it on our website at thesevibesaretocosmic.com, or in the future, you can listen live on WPRB Princeton 103.3 FM or on their web stream at WPRB.com. The show airs every Tuesday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Special thanks to WPRB and the Princeton Council for Science and Technology for helping make this podcast possible. FYI, all the great music you're about to hear was composed and performed by Jeff Snyder. So here in the studio, I have Cameron Ellis, who's a cognitive uh, neuroscientist here at Princeton University. Cameron, welcome back to the show. Hi, it's good to be back. So uh, thank you so much for having me on again. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I think the last time you were on was maybe last summer. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. About August. About August. That's right. And so, yeah, in our, in our past shows, we got all into um, consciousness. I, I think I made you define consciousness in both shows, which is, you know, as anybody, you know, if you just sit down and think about, okay, what is consciousness? Pick it apart. Um, it's, it's actually very difficult. And so as you can imagine, you know, if you're going to scientifically study something, you need to be able to define it. Um, instead of making you do that again, I actually just want to launch into our first topic, which is, um, and something that we, I know we've kind of like patted around in past conversations, but uh, really realized that it would be a much longer topic, so have saved it. Um, and that is um, actually animal consciousness. So can you kind of like begin with um, sort of kind of outlining the problem, I guess, like the different schools of thought on this? Yeah. So uh, the first uh, thing to think about is how do we know if any animal is conscious? First off, how do we know if any human is conscious? Well, that's what's commonly referred to as the problem of other minds in the field of philosophy and as well uh, described in uh, by various thinkers like John Locke dating back to the British empiricist. But a version of the other minds problem is do animals, do other beings on this planet other than humans experience consciousness? And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about from now. Uh, and the, this presents a number of problems because animals don't have a lot of the things that we typically think of as being uh, really important for consciousness. So they don't have any kind of uh, generative language like we as humans do, although they might have some forms of languages, they are nowhere near as proficient at it as we are as humans. They also, by not having language, have an inability to communicate their thoughts and feelings and if they have any thoughts and feelings to us as humans. And so that puts us in a difficult situation where we have to kind of make a decision or we feel like we have to make a decision about whether they're conscious or not. And whether uh, over the history of humanity we've made different decisions. For many millennia, in fact, it was assumed that animals don't have consciousness. And when I'm using consciousness in this, term, uh, in this sense, usually I'm not referring to something like a rich personal story, a narrative about themselves that extends over their life. That's not the kind of consciousness that I might be invoking when I'm talking about animals. Probably what I'm talking about, the main thing I'm talking about when I talk about consciousness and animals is kind of a, a sense of feeling or more than that, a sense, uh, a, a sense of 
perception or quality of experience that's that's more than just the sensation itself. So when uh, this relates to a conversation we had in our second episode and the term qualia came up, qualia is the term that philosophers use to describe these kind of unique uh, aspects of consciousness which describe uh, experiences that can't be distilled or can't be uh, simply described as the sensation. So when we talk about pain, it's not just that there's like firing in nerve cells that that signal that this animal should move the, their body away from this fire or something like that. It's actually that that pain is associated with this really aversive experience and that experience is what is kind of in play when we talk about animal consciousness. That's the question. Do animals have those experiences? So you're saying something like, um, you know, if if a dog is touched by a flame, they don't just pull their paw away uh, because that is the natural reaction or that is like some internal neuron firing saying that they actually are experiencing suffering. Exactly. And that's the question. Are they experiencing suffering? Are they experiencing suffering like you or I would experience when we when we undergo that same thing? And when I referred to history before, for most of humanity's existence, um, it was believed that animals don't experience pain. So uh, for the development of um, medicine they did a lot of experimentation on animals and there was no vivisection and it was often live vivisection the Mm. cries and screams of the animals were unheeded because they assumed that these animals weren't experiencing anything like human pain and so they weren't kind of within the purview of morality that would make it kind of repugnant to do that right and there was and there was a lot of i mean you know we still have things like cockfighting Mm -hmm. today yeah but um but you know there used to be things like cat pianos right where yeah, anyways, I actually don't want to describe it. It upsets me. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That is actually, I think, when, when I was thinking about uh, this discussion, um, what I think about is, is suffering, mm-hmm. is, like, um, you know, not whether, you know, as I was looking into things like um, something that you mentioned, which I'd like you to talk about a bit more, like the problem of other people's minds, um, is... It, like when I not knowing that like definitional thing, um, which I'll ask you to get into, but not knowing about that before I started researching, um, I would just think about like whether or not I thought this thing or this other creature was conscious as whether or not I thought it actually was experiencing pain or suf- pain and suffering mm-hmm. from from various events. And I guess the main motivation for thinking that way is that if it were experiencing pleasure or pain, then it would gain a moral status that it wouldn't otherwise have. So when we're thinking about, say, eating animals, when we're thinking about using animals for uh, entertainments, things like circuses or cockfighting, as you refer to, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things take on a different meaning if it was the case that the animals felt pleasure or pain. Uh, A classic example is... No one blinks an eye if I were to kick a stone across the room, but if I were to kick a puppy, that would take... uh, People would react in a very different way. And the reason is that we assume that the puppy is something that experiences thing and that kicking it would be an awful experience for that puppy to undergo, therefore we shouldn't do it. It's immoral to hurt this animal because we believe it's experiencing pain and that pain has a status that prevents us from overriding it without due cause or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So can you discuss um, this very interesting problem of other people's minds? Yeah, so uh, the the experience we have is one that's kind of solitary. When we are 
thinking about the world, when we're experiencing the world, we are trapped inside our brains. We don't ever have access to the thoughts of others or the experience of others. When I think about what the colour red looks like to me, I can only think about it in terms of my own experience and I can't think about it in terms of your experience. Mm -hmm. This is a version of the, the, the problem of other minds. It leads, thinking about this problem leads some people to conclude something quite extreme, which is that I, in fact, me, am the only conscious person in the world. This is solipsism. This is the belief that uh, sentience is singular and that we are the only agents in the, in the universe. Or when I say we, I mean I. I am the only agent in the universe and everyone else is an actor and some automaton that doesn't experience it. And this is slippery, also... Slippery, so, uh, slippery slope to psychopathy. Exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. It's, it's not too dis- different from uh, being a psychopath. But the... This is one way of thinking about this, but in, in general, most people in both philosophy and life generally don't think that uh, this is true. We do imbue other individuals with consciousness, and right. this has developed into a really rich literature and um, theory of mind. So theory of mind is a psychological field which asks the question about how, how do we think about other minds? How do we create, uh, create models of other people's experiences? And this has been a very kind of productive field. For instance, it's asked, how, when does this develop in, in life? Do we get it from birth or does, is it something that we have to learn over time mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. just get over time? And so a lot of research has been done in this uh, using what's called a Sally Ann task. This is the task that's typically used in childhood. So to test whether a child, let's say a two-year-old, has a theory of mind, what you might do is you might show them this kind of story unfold. And how it will work is that Sally will walk into a room and Anne will also be in this room. These, these are two little girls. Sally will uh, put a bagel underneath a basket and then there's another basket that doesn't have a bagel underneath it. Let's make it more fun. Let's put a cookie. Kids don't like bagels. Uh, <laughs> let's put a cookie under, under the basket. Uh, and then so Sally put it there. Then Anne sees this happen but then leaves the room. When she leaves the room... Sally leaves the room or Anne leaves Anne the room? leaves the room, okay. sorry. Pronouns are important here. Uh, Anne leaves the room. Now, Sally, being mischievous, decides to move the cookie from bucket A to bucket B. Mm-hmm. Anne walks back into the room. You now ask the child, the two-year-old that's being shown this movie, where does Anne think the cookie is? Is it under the first bucket or the second bucket? Well, if the child has a representation of what Anne is thinking, mm. Anne has no idea that Sally was mischievous and moved the cookie. So she's going to say, if, she's repre- if the child is representing what Anne is thinking, she's going to say it's under the first bucket because that's where Anne thought it was. Mm-hmm. But until the age of often about four years of age, children can't do this. What they'll actually say is that the cookie's under bucket B, that it's under the second one, that they only can respond to the kind of literal truth. They can't respond to the the kind of extra step of saying, even though this is the truth, this person thinks that it's not the truth. Really? Yeah, this is is something that develops at about four years of age. Now, it... Depending on how you ask the question, like this is kind of a kind of difficult way of asking that same question because it's like involves language and memory and lots of things like that. If you make the task a little bit simpler, then even still it takes about two years for it to develop, long after language and a lot of other skills develop. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I like I when you're talking about this, I am thinking of the the more um, simple task of just 
Mm-hmm. Like peekaboo. Peekaboo. Yeah. 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 So that that more relates to this idea of object permanence. This this development that happens around nine months of age that uh, children start to learn that things not in their field of view actually exist. That things exist outside of what they're currently experiencing. Um, I do want to take it on a side though that's quite uh, I think important is that object permanence and also theory of mind aren't just things that we kind of learn at a certain age and then are never kind of relevant to our cognitive processing again. It's always the case that object permanence is something that we struggle with. It's always difficult for us to think of things that aren't in our present world and our universe. Out of sight, out of mind. That's the common idiom to describe the idea that it's hard for us to think about things that we can't, aren't currently experiencing. When it comes to theory of mind, people differ on the extent to which they think about other people's minds, the ability to think through what other people are thinking, mm-hmm. how well they can put other people in, how well they can put themselves in other people's shoes. This is called empathy in kind of layman's terms, but it's kind of called empathy. Um, but it's it's important that like people differ on their ability to kind of reflect and predict people's behaviour and kind of understand that she thinks that I think that she thinks that I think this thing happened. That's like a really difficult thing for us to do, but it's mm-hmm. important for how we operate in the world. So let's bring it back to to consciousness mm-hmm. and animals. So is that, I guess, um, is that one of the kind of prerequisites for consciousness? So and also, and also do animals show yeah, this capacity? Great question. Um, so this is a really active field of research that's been kind of uh, being done over the last 15 years of asking the question, do animals, usually questioning um, higher primates, so chimpanzees and bonobos, do they have uh, the ability to perform theory of mind tasks? Can they do the Sally-Ann task as you describe it? Now, um, the research is developing. It is the case that it's an ongoing literature But there has been a lot of promise that you can pose these kinds of situations with chimpanzees where they have to respond based on the knowledge of the other animal Mm. that that they they have to respond according to what they know the other animal knows, not what they themselves know. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ability to think about other people... I don't want to say the word think because that's like quite a loaded term, especially in this literature, but the ability to respond as if they are imagining the other animals' minds seem, presence and seem present in these animals. Right, so we can't actually know what they're thinking, of mm-hmm. course, uh, but we can, um, like what we have, the data mm-hmm. that we have is we have their response. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in the end, I mean, it would be... It would be um, contrary in particular to this kind of research to make a presumption about their thinking mm-hmm. yeah um sorry yeah. yeah yeah and and so i don't want to get too far ahead and say that uh, that animals can think about or animals have really rich representations of other animals minds the literature doesn't show that but the literature is kind of edging on this precipice with a imbuing these animals with a lot of abilities that they they actually can respond as if they've got some form of representation about these animals minds but maybe that's due to simple reflexes simple more simplistic explanations but basically the research is going such that the ability to create simpler explanations like using things like reflexes or based on competition rather than them having representations of other minds, the ability to make those simple explanations is kind of evaporating, that the complexity of the, or the, the complexity of the representations animals seem to be showing almost behooves us to conclude that they're representing others' minds, even though there might be actually simpler explanations out there. So 
um, I want to kind of take this back again, but before I do, there's been some really particularly interesting research on this with chimpanzees, right? Mm -hmm. um, could you describe that a bit? Um, yeah, so there's, there's lots of different versions of this task. I don't know if you had one in mind. Um, I guess it was, it was the one um, that, was, that you mentioned before of um, chimpanzees uh, like warning their, mm. their um, like clan members of danger. So, mm. and, and specifically doing it uh, more when they knew that other members didn't know that yeah. the danger was represented. Yeah, exactly. So um, That seems like a particular representation of what you're talking about, yeah. of inferring. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. So um, there's lots of different ways to do this research. One really excellent way of doing it, which is what you're referring to, is kind of basically let's go into the habitat of a chimpanzee. Let's not test animals that have any experience in zoos or anything like that. Let's just go out into the wild where we know chimpanzees exist and then we'll get people who observe these chimpanzees to do these little experiments. And Basically, uh, one of the experiments that was conducted, which you're referring to, is that chimpanzees had this uh, consistent pattern of movement every day, where they'd go from their living quarters to a stream, I think it was, where they would drink and eat and groom. And what the experimenters did was they placed a snake, a, a fake snake, on the path. And a snake is a danger, danger to chimpanzees, and they would want to avoid it. What the question was, was did these chimpanzees alert the other animals, the other chimpanzees in the troop, as to whether the snake was present. So if they were walking along and they see the snake, did they make calls, vocal, vocalizations that indicate that there's danger? Because we know that certain calls represent like danger versus food versus these other kinds of vocalizations. So did they make a call that signaled danger? And specifically, did they only do that in a situation where other animals needed to know, as in other animals were behind them likely to actually encounter that snake or in a situation where they uh, where they're alone or whether they're with other people so basically did the likelihood that the snake could affect other animals and lead to an increase in the rate of their signaling you could imagine a version of this where they just see the snake and they just immediately make the sound it doesn't really matter about the other animals that are present but and what they actually found was that the frequency with which these animals made these vocalizations signaling danger tracked the actual danger this snake could have posed to these other animals mm. that so that's really fascinating so um you kind of have talked a bit about one extreme um of either assuming that no animals um or nobody other than humans are conscious um and and the, the even more extreme of nobody other than me and my brain and my solitary solitary brain um, is conscience. But there's the other end of the spectrum, and then there's kind of the thought experiments to sort of tease out the in-between, because there's the other end of the spectrum, but then there's also, I mean, where we all kind of live, mm -hmm. which at least I know that I live in this, in like the gray area in between everything's conscious and only humans are conscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about the idea of everything's conscious. Now, that is a idea that's referred to as panpsychism. Pan meaning all psychism, as in having a psyche or a soul. So panpsychism is the thesis that all or almost all things in this universe 
have consciousness not necessarily full-blown consciousness in the way that we have consciousness it's not necessarily like they'll be whimsing about bark and like trying to reflect on the beauty of uh the color red but it might be the case that they have some experience however rudimentary it may be even impossible for us to actually understand how simple it might be nonetheless these uh even very simple mechanisms are believed to have consciousness under this view. This is called panpsychism. And when I say some organisms, I don't actually just mean animal species, things with DNA. I'm talking things as simple as a light switch under this view have consciousness. What's critical for, sorry, I should say that one brand of panpsychism has uh, imbues consciousness to things like um, light switches. Panpsychism actually existed um, in other forms, kind of religious and religious versions where it's like animals or organisms had souls and all organisms had the soul, all biological, automa- all, all biological um, machines had these souls and therefore panpsychism applied to all biological machines. But mm. the panpsychism that uh, is kind of popular today within the field of consciousness is um, underneath the banner of what's called the information integration theory which Mm -hmm. argues that any organism is conscious to the extent that it integrates and differentiates information as in to the extent that it's an information processor things like computers things like us as brain uh, with our brains but also light switches they're conscious that's this form of popular form of panpsychism so um the internet like Mm -hmm. is is an interesting case Mm -hmm. of of um what did you call it integrated information theory theory. Um, IIT. IIT. So it's it's as you as you're saying, I guess just to kind of reiterate, because that this was a this is a fascinating topic. I mean, there's it sounds like with each of these, with each of these kind of um, models, I guess uh, models of viewing the world and what is and isn't consciousness, you have the thing that sets the dividing line, and for this, it's it's something as simple as integrating mm-hmm. information. Exactly, and so it's. It's a way of describing um, kind of the continuity of consciousness. That's probably the thing that they're trying to best describe is that things like humans are conscious, but also within humans there are different states of consciousness, that it's different if you are inebriated versus if you're in a coma versus if you are blind. These are different types of consciousness that they want to be able to quantify, measure, put in some kind of description. And also they would like to extend past human experience and say things like animals, yeah. mollusks, snails, oh, that's a mollusk, uh, and amoeba and then light switches. They also, under the same kind of definition of consciousness, are considered conscious. So, okay, so in this, in this view, it's like the amount of information that you're able to, so somebody with a better memory, for example, is more conscious? Think of it more as like the complexity of the system. So uh, if we were to describe a brain as kind of a, 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 a set of a communicating um, systems, so it's like a, each cell in your brain called a neuron it could be thought of as communicating with thousands of other cells and the degree of communication and the degree of feedback as in how much information goes from A to B and then back to A mm-hmm. is a way of describing how complex it is that the the more that 
the, these kind of wires cross one another, the more complex the system becomes. Mm -hmm. And that kind of complexity is what's thought to track consciousness. It, it doesn't necessarily map well onto things like how good your memory mm -hmm. is, because that might manifest as either a simple or a complex uh, wiring system. We don't actually know that. That's a kind of empirical question for us to figure out. But more generally, it's like you're conscious to the extent that that wiring itself is complex under this theory. That's interesting. I mean, something I find really interesting about this, being um, a mathematical scientist, is that this actually is um, one of the first things that have been that that has been mentioned um, that actually seems specifically quantifiable um, in the study of consciousness. So that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 appealingly quantifiable because right. it does have this rich tradition in information theory. The interesting part of this, though, is that for these researchers, so it's, it's kind of spearheaded, it, it is spearheaded, it's uh, mainly um, supported by this researcher called Giulio Tononi uh, at Wisconsin, and he, he has uh, this rich literature which is in the goal of trying to create systems, model simple systems, which are basically kind of like circuit diagrams. Uh, and these are incredibly simple, but to calculate the consciousness of these circuit diagrams is extremely computationally taxing. The way that consciousness mm -hmm. is calculated in these systems requires an ex a kind of a combinatorial explosion with the degree of complexity of those systems. Basically, within the current scope of what we even think computers could be possible of doing in 50, 100 years, the brain is far and away more complex than what the way of calculating it could hope to comprehend is. And the, the science of trying to understand the complexity of the brain is potentially prohibited from actually being able to quantify the complexity of the brain because of the computational complexity in, involved. about, you know, we talked about the extremes. We talked about um, nothing is conscious but either me and my head or nothing is conscious but humans. Um, and then the other extreme of, of anything that can integrate um, information is conscious so, so that, that make, casts a very broad net. But then I was thinking about basically myself, um, as I want to do, and, um, and how I know that I live in some middle ground. Um, I, for example don't particularly, well, unless I'm really hard-pressed, perhaps, um, I don't particularly think of um, crickets. Maybe I do, but I don't know, as conscious. I don't know, maybe, but I definitely know that my dog is conscious or my cat is conscious or, or even, you know, take it away from a pet. I, I definitely feel like um, a cow uh, or... Elephant. Elephant, thank you. I was looking for something not domesticated. Um, an elephant is conscious, um, but I don't especially uh, think of like bacteria or something like that. Um, and can you can you talk a little bit about uh, 
like what is going on there? Yeah, so uh, there's two parts to kind of this. One, which is kind of our impulse, our assumption of what animals are conscious, which is kind of what Stevie was delineating, the crickets versus elephants. There's also kind of uh, potential scientific questions about which animals are actually conscious, which animals aren't. So on that first question, it's more sociological than it is psychological. So often it's the case that we give uh, moral status as well as kind of the status of consciousness to animals that either we like for cuteness reasons or because they have served us in some way. Animals like dogs and cats, because they are our pets, we have lots of experience with them in a very friendly setting, we often give them consciousness versus animals that have similar level or similar levels of competence and uh, ability to respond to the same stimuli in certain ways don't have that level of consciousness that we don't assume they have that level of consciousness so a pig for instance often pigs are smarter than dogs they seem to be able to respond to the in the same ways to pleasures and pains but most of the time we don't really think of pigs as conscious you wouldn't really do that it's only when you kind of see the horrific station in which most pigs are subjected to in kind of farm, factory farming that you start to consider the the happiness or the pain and pleasure of pigs. But just generally, they're not very high on our list of whether it is important to whether they're conscious. An animal that's very low down on our list is rats. We don't think rats are conscious, or if they are, we generally try and think that they're not very conscious. The part of the reason for that might be that they gave us the bubonic plague in the 1600s and that they were a, a carrier of disease and so we kind of had some animosity towards them. These are kind of like folk... Or at least we think they gave us a bubonic plague. Yeah, yeah at least we think <laughs> they did. Uh, this, this is kind of like a just-so story I'm telling you about, but just generally it seems that I'm trying to convey to you it's kind of without evidence that we assume some animals are conscious versus some animals aren't. It's generally not based on kind of sound empirical scientific understanding. So let's look at the scientific understanding. As I've, as I've mentioned before, there's um, multiple ways to describe consciousness, but what we can ask questions about is what neural systems do these animals have in place that we believe are critical for consciousness in humans and are they in place in these animals? So as in, if we can find the kind of neural correlate of consciousness, the, the part of the brain, the process in the brain, what the brain is doing when it's conscious, and we can find that in animals, then we're pretty on pretty solid ground in assuming that the animal has something like consciousness. And to this extent, there's been a lot of work uh, investigating the pain system, so understanding what animals have experiences of pain that are akin to human-like processing. And Surprisingly, this goes a long way down in the kind of animal kingdom. Animals like mollusks included, including octopi. Octopi have quite a rich nervous system, which includes kind of sensations of pleasures and pains. Just recently, they were kind of struck off the list of animals that you can do experiments on without giving oh. an eth a a mm. anesthetic to because we believe they have some experience that means that they should be treated respectfully. That must be a very interesting list, I should say. It is an interesting <laughs> list. Uh, rats are not on it. Or really? Depending on which country you're in, it, it differs, but rats have a much lower status than things like dogs and rabbits, even though rats are, I would argue, just as intelligent as dogs and rats, sorry, dogs and cats mm. and, and rabbits. Uh, and 
And so there, there is some notion in which we can say, well, does this animal have the neural system in place for us to be able to say that this animal is conscious? Yeah. And just more generally, I kind of want to take, uh, kind of uh, proselytize for a second uh, about how um, this kind of thinking, me, me thinking about what animals were conscious, basically led me to become vegetarian. It was over the course of my study in psychology that I started thinking about kind of the distinctions I was drawing about what animals it was okay to eat versus which animals it wasn't okay to eat and kill and use for my own purposes. And it made me realize that the distinctions we were drawing were mostly arbitrary mm-hmm. it, and, and that they were based on these sociological reasons and certainly not based on these empirical reasons. As I said, I think a pig is very conscious. I think a cow is very conscious. Cow, uh, chickens might not be the most conscious animal, but these demarcations aren't relevant for us deciding whether it's okay to eat this animal. And just more generally thinking about the sentience of the animal made me feel like it was really important that these animals are, should have a life that's worth living and I don't think the benefit to me of eating meat outweigh the cost to them I perceived. That's that's very interesting. I think that that is um, probably when a lot of people became vegetarians. Um, for me, it's more like I think a lot about suffering in terms, like as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, in terms of when I think of as some like even when I was like making that distinction of did I think a cricket was conscious, I was trying to think about how I would feel if, um, I'm a sap, but like how I would feel if a cricket was killed or whatever, um, I, you know, what does that make me feel? Do I think that I'm going to make them suffer or however? Anyways, um, for the sake of time, uh, the next topic that I'd, that I'd love to talk about kind of is more directly related to the um, information Uh, integrated information theory that we talked about in terms of what is and isn't conscious can they integrate can it whatever it is uh integrate information and um there is very fascinating research being done in terms of integrating more information and um can you kind of uh give us a primer on what you mean or what when somebody talks about um sensory substitution what that what's that being referred to yeah so a really a critical thing to keep in mind throughout all that we say in this section is the following sentence you do not see with your eyes you see with your brain Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is that the way that your brain receives information is not necessarily critical for the brain's ability to process it that if you were to somehow rewire the inputs to your brain such that your information from your eyes were not coming from your eyes, they were coming from somewhere else, but nonetheless looked and acted as if the inputs were coming from your eyes, your brain would not know any different. Mm -hmm. This is uh, typically in kind of uh, folk and also philosophy terms described to as the brain in the vat idea, or in terms of uh, movies, the matrix, where if I were able to kind of tap into your brain and rewire all of the inputs and outputs and make it such that it seemed as if your brain was receiving uh, responses from your body, then your brain would believe that it's receiving responses from your body. And the reason why this is relevant for what the topic we're talking about now is uh, is that it's possible for you to kind of hijack the sensory inputs that we currently have in order to manipulate them or to provide new senses. And what I mean by this is it's possible to provide your body with inputs that it will then interpret, uh, recognize, understand, and treat them 
in ways that you wouldn't otherwise think were possible. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the classic example of uh, sensory substitution comes from Bucky Reader, who was a researcher in... Uh, the 1950s up to the 2000s. And I also stole that line from him uh, that you don't see with your eyes, you see it with mm. your brain. Um, and he developed uh, the first sensory substitution device called BrainPort. And what this was was a, correct, a, a, a device that could allow blind people to see. And how this worked was that participants, uh, sorry, people, patients, uh, had this device sit on their tongue. It was basically this uh, metal, metallic object that I put in their mouth and it would have all these uh, kind of uh, tactile sensors on it that would kind of stimulate the tongue uh, in certain places, in different places along the tongue. And the resolution of this was pretty low. There's probably only about 100 of these uh, little nodes on, on the first brain port that was made. Mm-hmm. But what's critical is that this, this uh, device was attached to a camera so that when you were seeing something, when, sorry, when the camera was uh, in view of something, that would be translated into some sort of representations, basically maybe a pictorial representation that was then translated into input on the tongue. So let's say uh, there's a ball flying towards you, a baseball flying towards you. What this device would do is it would, in the visual field representing that ball, it would translate that visual space into tongue space. It would like stimulate that region of tongue. And you would then realize that there's something in that visual field and you might be able to catch it. And people were, after very small amounts of training, able to see or rather respond to visual stimuli without actually seeing them. And Mm -hmm. this started off a whole bunch of really fascinating and interesting thinking from a lot of people where it's basically you're able to substitute a sense that you have with a different sensation or a different input. Oh, that's interesting. So so you you have to basically take something you already have, of course, like, um, uh, like hearing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's something it's what sonification yeah so so there's lots of different versions of sensory substitution and i can kind of enumerate them because they're all very interesting so one type of sensory substitution uh would be to use sound to translate into another sense and this is called sonification is another term for this Mm -hmm. and what this means is you can translate any kind of input and when i say any i really do mean any any input and that can have a certain pattern that will then diagnose what kind of thing that represents and then you learn over time to recognize those patterns and interpret them and respond to them. So, for instance, this has also been used to help people who are blind. So people will hear sounds representing what a camera is seeing and this could be things like color, it could be things like the distance of objects away and these could all be kind of meshed together in this very complicated sound that would just sound like the like white noise to us. But when people are trained in such a way to learn what these sounds represent, they come to be able to operate in the world using these devices. And there's incredible reports that come from these people that say, for instance, a person that might have lost their sight, after using this device and after learning to use this device, they report that not only can they see the world and like operate and work through the world, they actually say that their visual experience has returned, as in they see things just like we see things. This is this is what's really exciting, what's really cutting edge and what a lot of people are fascinated about in this field is 
it seems to be the case that at least anecdotally, because the science on this is really hard, you're using very small pop, uh, sample sizes, but it seems to be the case that some people can actually recover the experiences that they lost from uh, some injury or something like that. And so they re can regain, regain these senses. There's, there's several ways um, go with that. I mean, so so something that's interesting to me there is like, you know, it really should be like, I, I think when we think of becoming blind or something like that, like losing a sense, especially something like our sight, which is we, we rely on very, very heavily. I think it's probably uh, people's top choice of one that they wouldn't want to lose. Um, it's, it's kind of the richness of the information in addition to how much we rely on it, that if, it, if that amount of richness could be transferred into some other sense, like that's, that's quite mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah, it, and again, it seems possible. Now, we know neurally that the brain is amazingly plastic. The ability for the brain to respond to trauma or injury mm -hmm. and adapt to that injury is amazing. And there's been a number of studies that have been done on people, for instance, who are congenitally blind, so they never had any sight. Uh, and what happens to the part of their brain that responds normally to vision? So the part of the brain that processes vision mainly is the occipital lobe. Now, people who are blind don't have any need for that visual processing region. What actually happens in these participants, uh, what these individuals, is not that their that part of their brain shrivels up and is not used. What mm -hmm. actually happens is it's taken over by these other sense senses. So mm -hmm. things like touch sensation now take up a lot more real estate in their brain than it would otherwise do. Same with audition. And all of their other senses come in to kind of substitute this. This is kind of why people have this assumption that is actually founded that sense sensitivity to um, other senses uh, increases when we lose one sense and that's, our ability to to uh, use these senses is quite plastic there's amazing studies done where if I put a blindfold on you then after a couple of minutes uh, of being blindfolded you'll actually be able to use your nose to navigate a path following a scent of chocolate I can put chocolate scent in a path and you'll be able to find it even blind just by using your nose. And normally we don't think our nose is capable of doing that, and it isn't yeah. because we so heavily rely on uh, sight. But mm -hmm. even after short periods of adaptation to not having sight, we can, uh, we can increase the sensitivity of our other senses. So, so it seems to, to be the case that our senses can change and we can mm -hmm. adapt to new inputs. And so this is what a lot of people are working on to try and make it so that we can give these assistive prosthetic devices to people who otherwise have lost a sense. So, and you, and, and you were careful to say in the beginning of this that uh, it's really any input. So something that I find really fascinating about this, really interesting, is, is that you can take things um, like uh, light that we can't generally see. Mm-hmm. For example, um, like infrared or something like that, um, um, and and make it so we can we can use sensory substitution to to sense that. Yeah. So 
at that point it becomes sensory enhancement because it's no right. longer us using sensors that we've lost, it's us using sensors that we never had. And a version of this is that some people respond to being blind by developing echolation, you know, that ability that uh, bats have in order to be able to navigate dark environments. Oh, echolocation. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Just to put it in the American, Americanize that, yeah. Um, and so... Blind people can actually develop that ability that they'll use clicks or right. hitting the ground in some way and noticing the echo time that's required in order to be able to navigate environments. Now, this isn't a perfect sense, but they become extremely proficient at doing this. This is kind of a form of enhancement, but we can get a lot more fantastical. So, for instance, one thing that I really like uh, that some people are now doing is to use uh, um, put a magnet inside their finger. Uh, what you basically do, it's, it's a bit gruesome, but they, they in, make an incision in their finger and, and put in a very strong, small magnet and then sew their finger up. And then what happens is that magnet vibrates whenever it's around a magnetic field. And that vibration turns into touch sense, a haptic sensation. And that sensation is then has a certain pattern that we then learn to interpret. So when you're in a certain type of magnetic field that will be vibrating in a certain way, that's different when you're in a different type of magnetic field. And people, after very little experience of having these uh, inserted in their fingers, will learn to experience different magnetic fields. So these people can tell the difference between whether power is going through or not through a wire. A lot of electricians have installed these, in, installed, I said installed because we're robots now. Uh, <laughs> they've put these in their fingers uh, because they want to be able to tell where the electricity has stopped working in a cable. This will allow them to know where electricity has stopped flowing. It can also be used kind of gimmickly to pick up uh, metallic objects, but just generally it's giving them a sensation of the magnetic environment that they don't otherwise have. That's Yeah, that's that's cool. That's um, uh, maybe before you try this at home, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Google it a bit because uh, you are putting something with heavy metals in your finger. And you probably won't have a easy time getting through airport security after oh, that fair, as well. Fair point. Fair point. Um, so. Okay, so with that, something that I was wondering, I mean, so it needs to be in a place where you have heavy nerve endings, mm -hmm. so, like, people put it on their finger, mm -hmm. right? So that, like, and, and it's after, like, this is something, like, you, you mentioned, you know, covering your eyes, and a couple minutes later, we can use our nose better than normal. Um, in this case, it's what, like, it, I think it's, like, a few weeks, yeah. right? It's something where our yes. brain just slowly integrates it. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, you know, you can you can, once you kind of cross this barrier you can think of tons of applications yeah. and sorry well i also think of, of like every superhero movie i've ever seen but of, like of course yeah uh that's a great place to go and that's exactly where these kind of childlike researchers are going i don't mean childish <laughs> in a derogatory term i mean it in the best term yeah. uh so there's a very famous researcher called david eagleman um sure we're going to post a link to his TED talk because it's just mm. absolutely entertaining yeah. uh, and he's probably the biggest shot in um, big shot in sensory substitution at the moment what he's doing is fantastic work where basically uh, he's created this vest uh, where people wear the vest and it is imbued with these tactile sensors that can vibrate in different places around the body and there's probably a couple of hundred of these vibration things distributed out through the body 
Then what he does is a variety of experiments in which he changes what inputs are to those that vest and has people learn to respond to those inputs. So the most basic version is what we've been talking about before with like helping people who lost sight or lost hearing to be able to recover these sounds and sights that they otherwise lost. But he also takes it in a more fantastical direction. So for instance, he might have a, a person plugged into the stock stock market mm. he they're learning that they're experiencing the ups and downs of the nasdaq or something like that and they learn patterns about the changes in the stock market and he is actually doing an experiment where he has people buy or sell in the stock market where the only input they're receiving is vibrations in the chest they're never told that they're experiencing anything to do with the stock market and they're never told that they're buying or selling they just press green or red buttons mm -hmm. and these people are learning to buy and sell at appropriate times and in many cases are outperforming anyone on wall street in these decisions how hard is that <laughs> <laughs> joking um that's okay that that research is really interesting like you like the applications just seem like endless mm -hmm. absolutely endless. another another application that he talks about is that if you were plugged into all of a, a kind of a semantic analysis of all of the tweets that might be happening around the world. So let's say your left shoulder refers to Brazil, your right hip refers to Somalia, your your upper back is China, different parts of your body and different vibration patterns correspond to different sentiments. So when the majority of tweets in this country are happy, it's like buzzing along happily and when it's angry it's like blaring at you in this mm -hmm. vibration and what you'd then get is this global sensation of the mood of the country or uh, sorry the mood of the planet and then at the same time knowing the mood of the, the countries this again sounds uh, incredibly fantastical but we can actually do it with technology today you can buy this device today you can plug yourself into it and start experiencing these things and amazingly learn and adapt to these sensations that you're now receiving that's very cool. Yeah, that's that. Just the the plasticity of our brains, like our the ability for these new kind of neural pathways to form that can um, that can essentially like that. I mean, the like those are all fantastical, incredible. But just uh, to like bring it back to what you were talking about before, of just giving um, a blind person the ability to navigate through the world um, is just really yeah, really life changing and really incredible. So we actually had uh, um, a caller, uh, David from Hopewell called in and asked a couple of very interesting questions. So the first one, um, the first one, which was actually his second question, but maybe is a bit quicker. Um, he was asking about phantom limbs. Um, for example, if somebody is missing the bottom part of their, their leg, um, but they can still kind of feel their toes sometimes, if that has anything anything to kind of do with this 
Yeah, so phantom limbs are a really interesting uh, ailment that strikes people who usually have uh, people who have suffered an amputation. Um, and we did talk about this at the end of our first episode uh, together. So I recommend anyone who's really interested in this topic to go back to listen to that. But it is related to this topic. Uh, so it's really important to think about how phantom limbs are cured. Uh, the main treatment for uh, phantom limbs, so the I should, I should go back a little bit. Uh, phantom limbs, as Stevie mentioned, are this experience of having a sensation in a limb that you no longer have. And the reason why these need a cure is that often what will happen is you'll these limbs will get into a position that's painful, so they'll start to cramp. And even though there's no actual physical limb there, it will feel like your limb is in some way twisted or cramped and this is very painful as you can imagine. And so to cure this, to make it so that there doesn't feel like there is a cramp, the one of the kind of, the one that was first developed and has been kind of iterated on since is what's called the mirror box. And so... Mirror box? Mirror box, yeah. So if you, for instance, lost uh, your arm and you no longer have um, you no longer have your arm, you may f- start to feel phantom limb pain. But a treatment for this is to use a mirror box. Now it's a bit hard to describe this in words, but I'll give it a shot. So how this works for the patient is that they are introduced to this box, which they sit such that they're not facing directly towards it, but they're kind of sitting to the side of it. So let's say their right hand is lost or their right forearm has been lost. So they sit slightly to the left. And this box is set up such that there's a mirror system in it so that when they look slightly to the left, they're looking at a mirror. And what the participant does is then they put both their hands, I'm doing air quotes because they don't have one hand, but they put both their hands into slots inside this mirror box. Now, when they're looking at it from this angle, what it looks like is that their left hand, which is there, Uh, is reflected by this mirror and makes it look like they have a right hand also inside the box. And what the person does is that they're told to do exercises where they move their hands around all the while looking at their right hand, again, air quotes, because they don't actually have one. And what happens is this amazing experience over time where people no longer feel the pain in their right hand, their right hand starts to move according to what it looks like it should move. And the reason why this is related to sensory substitution and sensory enhancement is that this is a reflection of how plastic the brain is. The brain is infinitely capable of changing how it's kind of wired in order to the inputs it's receiving. And critically, it's able to be fooled really easily that just by seeing something, you're able to trick your brain into thinking that you have moved your hand, that seeing your hand moves makes your brain think that your hand is there. And so, yes, it is related. That, okay, very, that's very, very cool. Um, now, I want to like, just like dive straight into his, his first question that he asked, um, which is kind of about taste, like not, not taste like food taste, but like, um, say, you're attracted like attraction to someone or something or your like dislike of cilantro or whatever I like but the dislike of cilantro that someone might have um so if you for example um let's say you you are blind um but maybe uh you know you still have like maybe you become blind let's say and you know you think that um let's say sunsets are really beautiful uh then and you had this sensory substitution 
would you still find the sensory substitution version, let's say it becomes sound or something, would you also find that beautiful? And would it be kind of, um, he, he asked, a, he kind of followed up very interestingly, or like, would it kind of be, because it's because it, a sort of translation is happening. And would it be um, the kind of translator's input, let's say the translator hated sunsets or something, the person who coded it, would you then hate sunsets or would you still find them beautiful yeah so this is a great question david uh i think you are asking the questions the scientists would be asking because this question is completely up in the air and it i think you hit the nail on the head when you're thinking about kind of what may push and pull people towards us i do want to kind of clarify one thing that is Anytime we translate any work of art or any anything, any sensory experience, there's always a risk that the translation won't be in such a way that we're going to like it. Often the case that when we read a book, if it's we read it in one language, maybe it doesn't read as well in another language. Mm, or yeah. when we read a book and then we see the movie, often we don't think that that translates well or vice versa. So mm. there's always these coding changes that could affect the way in which we think about the stimulus. But I think the more relevant thing to think about here is exactly what you were saying, which was that uh, it's going to depend on how they code the information. And so if it's the case that they decide that sunsets, sunsets are going to be represented by this really screechy, high-pitched sound that's really unpleasant to yeah, watch, right. then it's, of course, going to be unpleasant. But what actually happens in these situations is not that. Now, it's the case that we want people to learn how to use these... Um, these devices. We want people to be able to figure out that this means red, this means ball. This you want means it to be intuitive. You want it to be intuitive. And believe it or not, we have strong intuitions about what certain sounds correspond to certain shapes in the world. Mm. So, for instance, if I were to draw a cloud and it's like this nice fluffy thing, I could call that booba, and that would sound like a reasonable name for me to call it. Mm. Versus if I had this other shape that I was going to draw, and it was really spiky, and it had all these points, that could be described as kiki. Now, if I were to show you these two shapes, which one's kiki, which one's booba? Everyone. It doesn't matter if you've never spoken English before, if you can't speak English because you or you're a child. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to say kiki booba, unless you're a psychologist and you just want to be cheeky because you know the answer that I'm expecting. That's that's really true. That's like everybody, even like a, people who have um, language, languages yes. that are say very like... A tonal language. So yeah. for instance, like gamelan music, they also, so gamelans who make gamelan music, very tonal language, yeah. also kiki booba. Yeah, Anyways. yes, yes, yeah. part of Indonesia. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so we have these intuitions about what certain sounds map onto experiences, and there are multiple of these. So there's certain sounds that sound more blue, then there are sounds that sound red, and there's sounds that sound green. And what a person who was doing, who was wanting to make this device, would try and cohere with our intuitions. If they went against them, it would make it harder to learn because people had to overwrite those intuitions. And so in that way, it probably will be the case that the way in which you experience these things, like redness or sunsets, will probably be pretty similar between senses because we're going to try and make it as similar as possible between senses. So, okay, so this brings something to mind for me, um, which... Like we should we should get to our last topic soon, but but um, I guess I have like maybe a 
counter question, I guess, which is synesthesia. So people who have a strong association, let's, I think synesthesia specifically refers to um, between letters and colors. It actually just refers to cross-wiring of senses. It doesn't necessarily mean any specific version of synesthesia. Synesthesia is a broad umbrella term to refer to things like color grapheme, which is what you just said. So like you map certain colors onto certain letters. I just heard recently about a person who saw musical notes as having having different colors so they could uh, read sheet music by just looking at the color pattern of them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I wonder with that is like like I have a close friend who has very strong synesthesia in terms of um, letters particularly and she has an excellent memory be, um, in part because she's made use of this. Uh, and, and my question there is I'm sure there is somebody out there I'll, in the world who also has strong synesthesia between letters and colors and um, I think what what it seems to be implying with what you were saying with um, making things intuitive like there are there are blue words and there are red words is that is that two people with the same kind of synesthesia would see the same colors for a particular letter I'm like kind of putting you on the spot. No, no, no. This is a really interesting question, actually. Researchers in my lab have been interested in this question. David Eagleman, who, although we were talking about him in terms of sensory substitution, he also does research on this question. Is it the case that when a person has synesthesia, do they associate the same colour with the same letter across people? And although it's, like, not the most robust effect, it is the case that people typically do, that people have intuitions that certain letters are more likely to be associated with certain colours and that this maps onto synesthesia. Now, there's a really interesting explanation that, like, is begging to have more evidence given for it, but there was a paper that came out about five years ago which showed that people who develop colour graphene synesthesia, so letters with colours, typically saw fridge magnets as a child that cohered to the colour graphene associations (laughs) that they had later on. So although this isn't like absolutely uh, robust effect that we should be super confident in, it is lending evidence to the idea that you can train or learn synesthesia or that you do learn this over over your lifespan and that that depends on the experiences you had when you were younger. Well, this, I mean, well, this is why... I guess I would assume that this is cultural. Like, why I'm surprised that maybe people who have um, have are speak like from from as different of a culture from our Western cultures as possible and have very different languages would have the same associations with like Kiki and Babu or whatever yeah. between cloud and something spiky. But anyways, that's that's fascinating. Let's mm-hmm. let's just kind of. Um, Give that food for thought and move to our last topic in our kind of last 15 minutes here. So um, a kind of next place we sort of wanted to go, kind of a place we wanted to build up to in this discussion is the the, the concept of mind uploading. So um, uploading our brains or our consciousness uh, into a computer. And I mean, this also goes along with, um, what is it, information, in, in, oh man, why do I not... Integrated information. Thank you. I just, for some reason, can't hold that in in my brain. Um, Integrated information uh, technology. So um, IIT. So that goes along with that. If if consciousness is just uh, information and and, um, digesting and and holding information, then it then follows that we could upload our brains onto something. 
Yeah, I, I do want to point out that um, the idea that consciousness need not be embedded in like wet stuff like the brain is not wedded to IIT. There's a lot of theories. Most theories of consciousness don't think that actually the biology is important. They actually think that any kind of computational representation of the brain would be sufficient for us to recreate consciousness in a in a realistic sense. But that's just one version of what's important. The IIT is one version of what's important for recreating this consciousness. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So could you could you describe for us um kind of what is thought of as as mind uploading? Yeah, so this is kind of a science fiction fantasy that's existed for about 50 years. Recently, uh, episode five, I believe, of the latest season of Black Mirror, San ah. Junipero, very good episode. I think I stopped just before that because I found it too depressing. This is but. probably the only optimistic uh, Black Mirror episode, but oh, I good. think that was intentional because it's kind of not optimistic. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the, the premise of that episode and all of the science fiction is that one day in the future, we'll gain the ability to live forever in silica. We'll be able to upload our consciousness and live as avatars in a universe of our own creation in a video game that feels and seems just as real as anything else that we do while living. Like I was saying before, you can easily trick your brain into thinking that the taste of chicken is actually... The, the, the electrical stimulation to your brain that tastes like chicken... Uh, sorry, that, that is of the form of chicken, actually tastes like chicken, uh, that you can you can trick your brain in that way. And we can trick ourselves into experiencing this new reality. And so what this would manifest as is our brains and the representation and, and the kind of the computations that our brain typically do would be reinstantiated in computer software in silica, mm -hmm. and that would be served, uh, stored somewhere, and then we would exist in that, in that computational universe and exist for however long we desire to okay so what what are kind of the implications of this i guess okay well it's it's a fantasy at the at the yeah. moment so i i do want to preface this that there are substantial obstacles to getting to this but before before i go back to reality let's talk about some of these things firstly concept of heaven kind of becomes much more realistic and tangible we can actually say that people can go to this place where everything is great it would almost be that like this universe is of your own making mm -hmm. uh robert nozick a um, libertarian philosopher in i believe harvard uh has this thought experiment about the pleasure machine that there's this machine that could be created which would give you endless pleasure that every single thing that you find pleasurable in life could be supplied to you simultaneously <laughs> just creating the most amazing experience all at once for all of eternity this could be possible that you could create it such that your brain is being hijacked in such a way that this is what you're experiencing again heaven could be possible in this way but also hell could be possible in this way it could be that uh if you committed a crime let's say you murdered someone or multiple people you could be committed to a life sentence or multiple life sentences that far outspan the course of your life. It could be that you could exist in this universe of perpetual torment for a millennia and it would feel just like you're existing in this, in this world and you would persist in this universe. You wouldn't actually be able to get any reprieve because mm -hmm. the rules of the universe are not like the rules of our universe where things do decay and people do disappear. Um, it could be that you would under, undergo perpetual torment. So very opposite benefits and costs to this. So, okay, so, I mean, a question behind this that 
we actually have hit upon in, in past conversations, but is this really you that is in that is yeah. in the yeah. the like let's say you upload your brain into a computer, um, like, and then experience like constant pleasure like is is that actually you going through that yeah so i'm going to explain all of the ways that it couldn't be you but then i'm going to explain one way in which it could be you okay okay so um let's take this thought experiment of which is called the swamp monster thought experiment and it's just fanciful i like, I like it yeah i like it too um <laughs> let's say you're walking through the marshes one day and for whatever reason you decide to take a walk on a very stormy night mm. and while walking through the marshes you were struck by lightning mm. but the lightning was so fantastically and probably uh, present that at the same moment in which all of your particles disintegrated, the particles around you were recombined in such a way that you're recreated into the exact same being with the exact same memories and exact same thoughts that you had the moment before that lightning struck and disintegrated your body. The thought experiment is, are you still that individual? This is like a modern take and a more humanistic take on an age-old philosophical, philosophical problem called the ship of Theseus, right. which is that if you have the ship where you uh, it exists and then it uh, has damage to its hull and so you repair the hull and then it has damage to its mast and you repair the mast and then the cabin and you repair every single part of it such that no part of the ship is the same part as the old ship, is it still the ship of Theseus? Is it the same ship? This is the question. And the reason why this is relevant for uploading your brain to a computer is that let's say one way of uploading your brain to the computer is to dissect all the connections in your brain, understand all of the, the ways in which your neurons interact, understand every single component of that. But to do so, we have to chop your brain up. And then by understanding that, we recreate it in silica. Well, under this view, under the view I hold, that's not you that's going to be uploaded in silica. It's for other people going to be you. Other people are going to think it's you because it's going to have the same behaviours, thoughts and feelings and reactions. Mm -hmm. But for you, the person that's like important in concept, like the, the, the thing that's important for you that is that you persist through time and you are not persisting through time. Someone else who looks and sounds like you is persisting through time. And so that would be a form of uploading yourself to a computer that might seem appealing in a general sense, but I don't actually think is appealing for me because it means I die. My consciousness, the thing that's going on in my head, disappears and then another one is created at the same time. This is related to... Uh, there's, there's really fun kind of thought experiments you can get into about this, but I'm just wary of time. So I'm going to instead jump into uh, what I think is the solution. So the ship of Theseus is actually the great example of this. What I think you can do is you can use the ship of Theseus on your brain, and this is otherwise referred to as an exocortex. What you can do is if you have your brain and I go inside your brain and I replace one neuron, so one cell in your brain that's a computational unit, and I replace it with a, a silicon replica. So it does the exact same thing. It's connected to all the other same neurons, okay. but it's now a silicon replica. Do Are you still conscious? Are you still you? Well... I would assume that you are, and that neuron is probably still functioning the same way it is. Mm -hmm. So you're still human, you're still functioning. Okay, now I'm going to replace another neuron. Okay, you're still human, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, until we've gone through the 100 billion neurons in your brain, and all of them are now these com computational replicas. At no point do I think your comp uh, that your consciousness switched off. I don't think there was, like, 
X percentage of your brain was silicon and so your consciousness disappeared. I think that there, by definition in this thought experiment, is continuity in your computational processing and the way that your brain is functioning because that's the way these neural replacements worked. And so in this way, I think that you are going to persist. Your consciousness will persist through this transition. And then once you're in silica, it's very easy for your body to be changed slowly at the same time and then everything in you to be replaced and so I think this ship of Theseus idea is actually a way of getting your brain onto a computer and again maybe you don't actually want that because who knows who's going to use you your consciousness nefariously so this I mean okay so I have several questions with this I mean one is that like don't we like swap over almost all of our cells after what like eight years or every eight years or something like that so there is like a certain amount of this that is not just a thought experiment right certainly it is the case that um your body is undergoing endless changes and we assume that our consciousness persists over time there is a really interesting wrinkle to my view that i'm still trying to figure out which is sleeping or any altered state of consciousness where right. the lights go dark in my experience and then I wake up again. Under my view, it's almost like I'm being compelled to conclude that those moments in which my consciousness goes black, that I have no experience in between A and B, like when I'm sleeping, that when A starts, as in when I fall asleep, I die in this sense, as in this consciousness, this, this consciousness that's important to me and persisting, ends and then when I wake up again it starts all over again because there isn't that continuity of experience that I'm saying is really important right well I mean well that then lends the question of like does not being conscious mean death but but it just means like you've lost your consciousness exactly and so this all revolves around this question of like what kind of continuity of consciousness is important to us because obviously if I was had this dissection thing occurred and I woke up one morning in this electronic bed in this electronic environment in this video game like world Mm -hmm. I would say oh I didn't lose consciousness I'm fine I feel completely okay this is like this surgery was completely fine right but that would be ignoring the fact that I may or may not have died in that process I would have the exact same response that's fascinating. Okay, I think um, this is a good time to 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 leave that, let that lie. And um, Cameron, I've been I've been speaking to you, Cameron Ellis. Uh, he is a graduate researcher uh, here at Princeton University, but not for that much longer. He's, sadly, sadly, he's moving to Yale, uh, but he's here um, at the moment in uh, cognitive psychology. And he's been on the show a couple times before uh, to discuss kind of throughout all of this, the kind of strain has been the scientific study of consciousness and and senses and all the, all that comes with that. So this has been the third time that we've spoken with him. Um, Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's always fun. Well, that's it for this week's episode of These Vibes Are Too Cosmic. Thank you for listening, and thanks again to WPRB and the Princeton Council for Science and Technology for their support, and to Jeff Snyder for the excellent music we played in the podcast. And as always, thank you so much to David Exame for editing the show, and to our wonderful guests who have taken the time to speak with us every single week. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your curiosity and drive to learn more about our universe. I'm Stevie Bergman, my co-host is Brian Krauss, and you've been listening to These Vibes Are Too Cosmic.